0: Let's look to the Lord. Father, we just thank you right now. We do give you all the glory, all the honor. It all belongs to you, Lord. Every breath that we've ever breathed was given by you, God. Every heartbeat that we have was given by you, Lord. We are honored that you would allow us to not only walk this earth under your stewardship and your provision. Not only do you give us life, but the Bible says that when the Spirit of the Lord comes into our life, you give us life, and life more abundantly, God. And it is the abundant life that is one that allows us to go into next year, not only thinking about all the tragedy of the last two years and all of the pain and confusion, but it is the Spirit of God that allows us to know that we have an investment, a seal, a guarantee, that allows us to live full in an empty world. And so even now, Lord, fill us with your presence. Give us ears to hear that we might be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. Amen. Well, we are in the book of Esther, and we've been focusing on Esther most of this book, but we will today focus on the villain of the book, and that is Haman. Now, Uh, Haman's life is one in which you really get a picture of what it's like to rise and fall. And if I were to title this, I would call it the rise and fall of Haman. His life really gives us a picture of what happens to proud people. And it is a warning for all of us on how we need to check ourselves and humble ourselves before the Lord. The, The story, to understand the story well, you have to understand that this really begins with a plot to kill a king. There were two guards that were set up to, of course, guard the king, but they decided they wanted to kill him. So they're, they're conspiring this plot. And while they're conspiring, what happens is they do it in front of the king's gate. As they're doing it in front of the king's gate, a gentleman named Mordecai overhears the plot. Mordecai overhearing the plot then goes to his cousin, who's queen Esther. He tells Queen Esther, listen, there's two guys that are going to kill your husband, the king. The plot gets foiled. Mordecai is loyal and everything is all right. Now, that was in the first two chapters. So in the third chapter, here's what you would presume. You would presume that Mordecai would have been celebrated. You'd presume that Mordecai would have been exalted. And you'd presume that Mordecai would have been honored. But here's what reads in Esther chapter three, verse one. It says, after these things, these things being Mordecai finding out the plot and telling everybody about the plot, after these things, King Ashuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite. Now, here's what you have to understand. This is the first time we hear the name Haman. And the first time we hear the name Haman, it's right after Mordecai's loyalty, Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him. Now watch what the text says. It says, It advanced him, set his throne above all the officials who were with him. If you were reading that text, you would exact you would expect that the name Mordecai would have been there. But all of a sudden you see the name Haman. What we understand is that. Haman is given, he he becomes essentially like a vice president or a prime minister. He's now the second in charge. He has the highest position in the king's administration. Well, it's in light of that that you ought to understand in chapter 3, verse 2. It says, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, that is concerning Haman. Haman, they were now to bow down to him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now, under as Mordecai understood it, he pays homage possibly to others, but not but not to Haman. They try to convince Haman, you know, I mean, they try to convince Mordecai to pay homage to Haman. And it says in uh, Esther chapter three, verse five, and when Haman saw that Mordecai didn't bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, consumed by rage. Pastor Rasul preached on this. Part of his sermon was dealing with how the hatred consumed him. What we must understand about Haman is first and foremost, he's an Agagite. Now, I won't go deeply into that history, but being that he's an Agagite, that's like a junk drawer term, essentially saying that he was anti-Semitic against the Jews. He most likely was raised in a context of hating Jews. But you have to understand, this man has been around Jews this whole time in the kingdom of Persia. Why, does he, why is he so upset wanting to kill? Eventually he'll want to kill Mordecai and kill the Jews. What set him off? What set him off? Well, see, Haman is the product of an undeserving promotion. You ever seen anybody get a promotion they didn't deserve? It? That's a whole nother sermon for another day. He didn't discover a plot. He didn't come up with advice. He didn't lead the king in a battle. He didn't help anything with the king. What we know about Haman is that he gets elevated without a basis to point back to the elevation. You see, if you want to produce a proud person, elevate them without giving clarified steps of why they have had progress. Let them take the elevator and not the stairs. What happens in that moment is They're not totally sure of why they got to where they are, so what they'll do is they won't point back to a work, they'll point back to themselves. If you want to spoil children, give them all the privileges of living in your home without ever making them work. Give them a moment of not understanding how you got that home, how you got that money, why there's food in the fridge. You will create spoiled children that will expect the things the parents have without ever putting in the work the parents did. That's how you produce proud people. You've met some of them. You've met people that have all the advantages in life because of a situation they were placed in, not a situation they worked for. And what ends up happening is you get people who walk around proud, thinking they hit a home run, not realizing they were born on third base. The reality is Haman... Haman is elevated without clarified step. He's undeserving of the elevation and undeserving people of elevation become proud. Now, what is the problem of pride? You see, Haman has to keep his position. He's insecure. He knows deep down in his heart, Mordecai's the one that should be elevated. He's not safe within inside of himself. The problem of pride is that it is a concentration of everything to make it about you. Pride says, How do I look? What are people saying? How do people feel about me? Now we all have that sound inside of us, that tenor inside of us. We all have those questions inside of us, but the problem of proud people is the question of how they look is much louder than the work itself. They're more committed to the approval of men than to the work in front of them. Everything is a means to an end. How you look, how you come across, it's all about getting respect It's all about getting people's approval, and it's all about those things in order for you to make you feel secure about yourself. The Bible says that when you see pride in someone, this is a mark of concern. The Bible says in Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is a warning signal that there is a destructive force inside of you that will destroy families, destroy homes, destroy a business, destroy a friendship, destroy a church. And when you see it, you've got to realize there's something that's going off, helping you to see this. You'll take everyone out with you when you see that in someone or if you see that in yourself. You know, it's a problem. You know, when your your smoke detector, when that battery's dying. Beep. But it's just long enough for you to forget about it, right? And after the first week, you're like, I need to, I need to get that. I need to get that. After about a month, folks come over, they're like, Do you hear that? Be like, what? I don't, I don't hear it. Right? Right? And what's what's interesting is that you give them an hour or two and they won't hear it either. And you better be careful because the people around you can become deaf to your deficiencies. And they saw it at first, but then they got comfortable with it. And then they start saying things like, that's just them. Instead of, that's just sin. The fact of the matter is... The fact of the matter is, listen, pride is destructive. And in counseling people for 20 years and pastoring for years, it all, it all, you, you, really just, you really come back to you can't really deal with them. Right? And these are people, they're self-justifying. Ask them about other people's problems. They are scholars. Ask them about themselves. They are naïve. And so it is with that in mind that what is, then you are probably saying, or hopefully you're saying, I don't want to be that person. Hopefully you're saying that. Well, Haman, by God's grace, gives us a, a picture of what it's like to hear those chirps. This text is some of those chirps, that, that sound of pride, making sure that that warning signal is not inside of me. Esther chapter 5, verse 11, it says Haman, Haman's sitting around and he's with his friends and he's committed to this idea of his, his splendor and his glory, but he's still got this issue with Mordecai deep down inside. It says in verse 11, Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him before the officials and the servants of the king. Then verse 12, then Haman said, even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow I'm also invited by her together with the king. So if you notice there was a invitation that Queen Esther had put together and she's putting together a dinner. Now, essentially, she's going to try to plead for the life of the Jews. But, but in reality, what you know, more, uh, Haman is doing is he's recounting to his friends all that he has. Riches, sons, promotions, and invitations by big-name people. Riches, sons, promotions, invitations. You read this text and you go, man, look at Haman. But if the truth be told, we all do a little bit of ego calculation. Where we count up the people that we're getting credit from, the places that we're seeing, the things that we've done. The problem with ego calculation is that when you have the riches, and you've got the sons, and you've got the promotions, and you've got the invitations, and you put all the weight of that on your life, you become uh, uh, arrogant and haughty. But when you don't have the sons, when you don't have the promotions, when you don't have the invitations, when you don't have the riches, you become anxious and depressed. The same calculation is happening in the arrogant person as well as the anxious person. It's just not working out for the anxious person. The numbers just aren't adding up. Mind you, when the numbers come in, they'll be a proud person in the end. It's the same issue. It's, the, it's two sides of the same coin, pride and depression. It's about seeing what I have and who I have and how I'm regarded and what they say about me. and That makes me me. And what is the problem of ego calculation? Ultimately, look what happens in Esther 5.13. Mordecai is, I mean, I'm sorry, Haman is sitting there calculating all these things. This is in the same text of chapter five. And he says, yet all this, riches, promotions, son's invitation. All this, all that stuff he counted up, he says, all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at that king's gate. You see what he just did? He said, I got riches, I got sons, I got promotions, I got invitations, but I need one more thing. I need Mordecai to bow down. And the problem of calculating your ego is that you'll never be satisfied with accomplishments because there'll always be one more thing, one more person, and one more praise you need. He says, oh, it's nothing in light of the fact that I just don't have Mordecai bowing down to me. A proud man or woman has a never ending ego calculation without ever having deep satisfaction. It is with that that you feel the weight of pride. As I've been talking, there is a tendency to want to think about people who you know that are overtly proud, but I've also talked about the person that is deeply depressed. So that means there's a good chance that you fall into that continuum somewhere. If you want to effectively apply the word of God, don't think about someone else's internal calculator. Think about yours. Think about how you add things up. Think about the people, the names, the things that put you in a position where you find yourself boasting. Or you find yourself depressed. The way that the Bible tells us to deal with this ailment of pride is the medication of humility. Humility, Dr. Tim Keller would say that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather it is thinking of yourself less. Humble people desire approval just like proud people, but their lives are just caught up in a larger narrative. They see something grander and greater. The weight of importance of approval is different for humble people. They see that God is the broad story of their lives. His approval satisfies their heart. His approval medicates the wounds of human rejection. Well, how do you know? You Well, you know. It's hard for people to say they're humble. It's, it's weird to say, well, I'm well, there's some people who say they're humble. <laughs> but, but, but how can we have an assessment of humility? Well, I think Mordecai, uh, rather, um, Haman helps us with that. Um, he helps us with that because he has such a passion for Mordecai. He wants to hurt Mordecai so bad. Humble people overlook an offense by looking at God more than the offense. Let me just say that one more time. Humble people overlook an offense by looking at God more than the offense. Humble people overlook offenses. But it's not just because they're kind people. Proud people make offenses larger in their minds, sometimes even larger than God. In other words, the offense takes up more emotional real estate than God himself in your soul. And so, humble people shrink the offense, proud people magnify the offense. Proud people, what they do is what they, they, they actually, they magnify the offense so that they can shrink people, see? So he's a Jew. I'm the prime minister. See how that works? Humble people know that human, the human condition is complex. They don't understand the full story. They understand that they're broken. And they understand that God is good. So they are naturally shrinking themselves down in front of God's glory and his goodness. And so They don't spend their time magnifying and rehearsing old stories of old wounds and old people because they've got a new, good news that they're saturating their hearts in. That good news, they say to themselves, his mercies are new every morning. And they're renewing, listen that new, they're renewing their mind and the truth. Their heart is getting bigger and bigger for God. As your heart gets bigger and bigger for God, your mind goes to God. He takes up more real estate in your heart and your mind, and the offense shrinks. That doesn't mean the offense don't hurt. It doesn't mean the offense doesn't have any kind of uh, leverage in your life at all. It just means you don't sit there your whole life trying to score against people who have hurt you. You don't take up so much of your mind's time about how you're being viewed because you know how you've been viewed by the Holy One. Your heart is satisfied. Your righteousness has been given to you by God. That transforms you. That is humility. So that is a litmus test, how you see offenses. Well, we see this play out with Haman in Esther chapter 5, verse 14, he's hanging around with his friends. And as he hangs around with his friends, he's sitting there and they're laughing. And then, you know, he's like, you know, he's having a little drink. And he's like, you know what I mean? that have more. Because sometimes people, when they're drunk, you know what I'm saying? They start bringing up old stuff. I know y'all never seen that. Praise God. But they're sitting there talking with his friends. Like, I can't believe that Mordecai. So this is what happens. His friends go, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. The idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now, there's something you have to understand. The gallows are essentially a pole, like a tree, that you would have up in the air, and you would hang somebody on it. Now, this is kind of a crazy thing because there's two things. Um, do you remember? This was a s- silly game. But do you remember growing up? Maybe, maybe it was only for me. We played this game called Hangman. Did you guys ever play Hangman? You ever play Hangman, right? So you have a word you have to figure out, and every time you don't get the letter or the word, you know you don't get the word, you have to like write part of the person. And someone thought this was a good idea for kids. Someone thought. Someone thought this was a great way to teach words. By eventually having a man hang to his death. So we thought this was a good idea. Anyway, so but every time you draw a hangman, this is what it looks like, right? Now, this is what I want you to imagine. The gallows, based upon what he said about it being 50 cubits high, that's 75 feet in the air. Okay? So that's like a six-story building. So I want you to imagine gallows 75 feet in the air. And then I want you to imagine a man hanging off that. He magnifies the offense. See, that's what's happening right now. He's so filled with fury that he wants to lift this guy up really high and destroy him. And you, the, this illustration is here in the Word of God to teach us about Haman. But guess who else it is here to teach us about? Us. Because we put people really high in our minds. We create gallows for people incredibly high. The slights that you've magnified, the pains that you have rehearsed, some of some slights, some pains, and some ways that you've been overlooked, you've magnified them more than God himself. Payment is for us, to see about us. And I want you just to pause for a second and think, who is the person that I keep thinking about? Who are the people? What are the slights? What are the groups that I'm calculating, I'm adding up, and I'm longing to hang them high? Well, this warning signal for pride is a reason. That warning signal is there inside of you and I because pride leads to what? Destruction. That's what we see happen in Haman's life. On the night the gallows got made, interestingly enough, by the sovereignty of God, the king can't sleep. He decides, in Esther chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds. That's like everything that would happen in Congress. All the legal things that would happen. And he decides, he just wants to read what's been happening. The Chronicles, and and they were read before the king. And it was found, written, how Mordecai had told about big, I want to say Big Thana, but it just feels like the name... (laughs) It just feels like, it's like a hip-hop name, like Big Thana. So that's what I'm gonna say. I'm gonna just say that and then if you read it again and read it a different way, that's on you. But I just feel like this is my version of the Bible. And I'm gonna call him Teresh. Okay, so it's Big Big Thana and Teresh. Two of the king's eunuchs who every time I read it, that's what I heard. This God, God is working on me. Who guarded the threshold who had sought to lay hands on King Asherah. Okay, so So basically he reads this in the middle of the night while the gallows are being made, right while Haman is getting ready to have Mordecai killed, the king decides to read a book and notices that Mordecai should be honored. Now I don't have time to go into this, but I know a God of reversals. That while the gallows are being made, the king is being reminded of your character. Okay, that while while they're ready to string you up and have you lifted high, God is ready to lift you up and exalt you while they want to kill you. Oh, I don't have time to preach on that. (laughs) Yes, you do. So he acknowledges he overlooks Mordecai's uh, Mordecai's, uh, loyalty. So he has favor for Mordecai. And so the king is wondering, how can I elevate Mordecai? How can I honor Mordecai? Now what happens, coincidentally, sovereignly. What happens sovereignly is Haman begins to walk in while all this is happening. But the king doesn't tell Haman that he's thinking about Mordecai. So the king says to Haman in Esther 6:6. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? He's talking about Mordecai now. And Haman said, now watch this. Haman said to himself, now whom would the king delight to honor other than me? (laughs) Now I want to show you this other warning signal that's so important. By God's grace, we're given his internal monologue. This is what he says to himself. And what he says to himself is, self, who else should be lifted up other than me? The problem of pride is that it hides. Pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. See, carbon monoxide is tasteless, odorless, but you get enough of it, it'll kill you. In fact, those smoke detectors are also carbon monoxide detectors. You get enough of it, it'll kill you. The thing about pride is it hides. If someone's committing adultery, they know it's adultery. Nobody's be like, I was was committing sin, I didn't know that. That's not my wife? Oh snap. (laughs) Embezzlement? Oh, those $50,000 just walked into my account. I didn't know I was embezzling money. Yeah, I didn't know. No, people know when they're embezzling, people know when they're lusting and committing adultery, but there is no Pride Anonymous. People generally can't see the pride in themselves. Many of us can't hear those little calculations that they make. Many of us don't hear that internal monologue that is calculating, tabulating wins and scores against other people. And so we'll come back to that in a second. Haman says to the king, since he's thinking about himself, the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought. Shoo. The king has worn and the horse that ha- the king is ridden, and you know what? Put a, put a royal crown is set. And, and verse 9, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Okay. And let them dress the man <clears throat> whom the king delights to honor. And you know what? And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him. Thus shall it be to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, I, want, I don't have time to do this, but I want you to notice something. When he said in verse 9, let the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Guess who that is? Him. And he doesn't realize that he's saying that I'm going to be the one leading Mordecai, the one person I hate, around honoring the person I despise. He thinks he's exalting himself. He believes he's noble. He believes he's honorable. And one of the things I don't want you to miss there is what he says about robes. He says, I want the king's robe. He mentions that twice. And that you have to understand, when Pharaoh gave Joseph his robe, it was an indication that he had the favor of the king, that he had the blessing of the king, that he had the love of the king. And Haman figures, since I can't be the king, I might as well show off that I'm loved by the king. I might as well get the king's credit. The way that they celebrate the king, I want to be celebrated like that. Now, here's one thing I give Haman. We're all like that. We all want someone who is highly celebrated to celebrate us. We all want someone who has all the credit, all the style, all the name to name us. We want someone who we think the world of to think the world of us. One writer put it this way, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. What he's saying is if I had those robes, it would show that I'm loved. And everyone would know that. Because he lifts the king so high, he feels that he will be elevated because of the credibility of the king. I want you to know that we all need someone big to notice us. We all need someone of magnitude to notice us. We all need someone of grandiose credibility to notice us. So with that, Haman didn't have the wrong thing. He had the wrong king. We want someone who's honorable to honor us, to love us. And it is with that that we see that Haman is like us. We need robes. We need care. And this, our king, no, he didn't give us his robes. He gave us his righteousness. And when we see him, he will say, well done. And we will meet him face to face. The plot twist of the story. In Esther 6, verse 10, the king says to Haman, hurry. <laughs> Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Who sits at the king's gate? Look, look, look at this. Look, look, look at this. Leave out nothing you mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> Haman knows he's doomed. Haman knows that Mordecai is going to be exalted. Haman knows the plot is up. But here's what I believe God has put you in this place for those that are watching, for those that are here, for those that are podcasting. Luke 14 and 11. Everyone. Oh, this is about Haman. Everyone. This is about riches and sons and promotions and invitations. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And anyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Now you see, there's the advantage. Humbling yourself is lowing yourself before the king of kings and receiving a blessing from him. And throughout all the Bible, if you were to do a word study on the word humble, but also look for the phrase himself or themselves, you will see that it is not only exaltation. Anytime someone humbled themselves in the Bible, there is blessing and goodness, goodness that comes with it. The scriptures say in, in 1 Kings 21, Ahab humbled himself, and so the Lord did not disaster him in his days. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people would humble themselves, I'll heal their land. In Daniel 10, it says, Daniel humbled himself before God so your words have been heard. All the blessings of God are when we humble ourselves, when we seek God's face and we humble ourselves before him. Humbling yourself, therefore, would mean that you are praying and you are asking God, God, help me to hear myself. Help me to hear the internal calculations I'm making about people, places, things, riches, promotions, invitations, and sons. I want to know what's happening inside of me because one of the dangerous things about me and you is not knowing what's happening inside of you. People will be comfortable, they'll get used to you being you, but all the time, God is not used to you being you. He wants you to be like Him. Humble yourself. We humble ourselves by seeking God's face and his story and giving him all the credit so when we don't get the credit, we were going to give the credit to him anyway. We humble ourselves. We bring our story down before him and we say it was all about you anyway. We bring our stories, stories down to his level, down at his feet. We bow at his feet. So when people don't bow to us, we were bowing anyway. We've already lowered ourselves anyway. We humble ourselves before our King. And the Bible says in Esther chapter 6, verse 9, then. Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. He hanged Haman on the gallows he prepared for Mordecai. Haman hung from gallows he had prepared, 75 feet up. He thought he was going to make an example out of Mordecai, not realizing his pride was going to make him be an example made out of himself. That is the plot twist of all plot twists. Haman replaced Mordecai. But I know a greater plot twist because I remember. 2,000 years ago there was an old rugged cross and it was set up for Jesus our Lord and guess who we replaced he replaced me and you dying on the cross for our sins and he took our place and Haman replaced Mordecai because of his pride and Jesus replaced me and you because of his humility And that's why we ought to praise him. That's why we ought to bow before him. That's why we ought to give him glory. That's why we ought to honor him. That's why we ought to glorify him. That's why we take our story right before him. And if our name ever gets raised up, we bring it down. And we say, I must decrease so that he might increase why don't we stand father in the name of jesus in the name of jesus glorify yourself in this place glorify your story in this place we honor you jesus we honor you god we honor you lord we honor what you want to do in our lives in jesus name we pray amen